Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to episode three of the Great Irish Summer Podcast series from the Irish Examiner. My name is Kira MacDonald and today we're talking all things food. Few things have the power to evoke a memory quite like food. Whether it's the smell of freshly baked bread reminding you of home, or the sound of meat hitting a searing hot grill to conjure memories of wild parties past. Many of us keep our most precious memories tucked away with the ones of the food we were eating when we experienced them. Today we talk to Cullum O'Gorman. Cullum is the Executive Director of Amnesty International Ireland. He's also the founder and former director of One in Four, the national non-governmental organisation that supports women and men who've experienced sexual violence. As well as working to change the world every day, Cullum also aims to change the way we approach cooking in his weekly food column with the Irish Examiner. In today's chat, he talks about his mother's forward-thinking attitude towards the way we eat, why sourdough is easier than you think, and how he believes that every single meal we eat should be a hug in a bowl. So welcome, Colm O'Gorman, to episode three of the Great Irish Podcast. It's great to have you here. We're thrilled. We're big fans, obviously, because you are our, one of our food columnists. And today we're talking about food because we believe in the Irish Examiner, and I know that you believe this too, that food is not only is it tied up in our um, culture and heritage as Irish people, but also it informs so many of our memories. For me, um, most of my childhood memories are intertwined with smells of cooking or uh, memories of helping my mum in the kitchen. And so I'm hoping to kind of have a little journey through your life through food. Yeah, it sounds like fun. Yeah, it's much more than fuel, isn't it? You know, it's I always get, yeah. I always feel a little bit sad when I pe- see people's relationship with, with food being reduced right down to it being fuel. Of course, it's that. And that's incredibly important. But it's so much richer than that. I mean, as you, as you say yourself, I mean, it's for most people, food uh, um, is so evocative. Our food experiences are so evocative of, of, of memories of really important moments in life. I mean, when you think about it, we often use food to mark and to celebrate uh, big, big moments, big life moments. Yeah, it's a massive part of life. You grew up in a relatively large family, am I right? How many? Yeah, there were six kids. Yeah. And did you get a go in the kitchen? Did you did your mom allow you help or what was her kind of? way yeah my my mom was a very enlightened woman in many 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 ways not least in that she she certainly didn't break down you, you know chores or tasks or, or jobs that we do around the house on gender lines so there were there were three boys and three girls and I'm the third born but we all did everything from helping out you know with housework around the house to getting involved in cooking and stuff and she was really really passionate about food so we always got to help out uh, you know in, in part because there were six of us so that was also necessary and until I was 11 we lived we lived on a on a farm and then there were lots of people who at various points would be working on the farm so there was a lot of food to to churn out of that kitchen I mean I, I can remember 
like at this time of year, it'd be, it'd be, you'd be getting close to harvest time. And, um, and I, I hadn't mentioned this before, but one of my memories was, you know, sitting, you know, when the, when the tractors and combine harvesters stopped for a break and my mum coming down in her Hillman in car with, with, with uh, big uh, um, bottles of hot, sweet tea and sandwiches the size of doorstops and, and just sitting down with all of the men feeling like a big fella completely. And I would have been about seven probably, you know, getting into that kind of food. So there was always a lot of food um, coming out of the kitchen at home. And, and Mam was a great cook. You know, she was really passionate about about food and about nutrition. Was it uh, because I live I live on a farm and um, harvest time astounds me with the volume of food that goes out and the welcome that goes with it. And I think it's really indicative of of Irish people and and the way we we welcome people with food. We celebrate all the milestones. And it sounds like your kitchen had an open door. Would that be right? There were certainly a lot of people in and out of it because it was a busy place. So like there were six of us, right? Uh, um, so there would have been us and our friends and other people. But then also like the house was a busy place because the farm was a busy place. And my father had lots of other things, you know, uh, that he was involved in as well. He was involved in politics locally and in all kinds of stuff. And my mum was very involved in things. So there was just lots of people around. And I mean, it was a way for everybody. Food, food was just a big part of life and a big part of community then. I think one of the one of the... The, the positives of the last year and a half is funnily enough, even when we've been forced to be apart from each other, food's kind of played a big role in bringing us together. You know, the, the number of people who've just taken to sharing experiences of food or what they're eating or what they're cooking online during the pandemic when we've been apart. It's been remarkable to see how even when we've been apart, sharing food has brought us together, even if it's just virtually. And I think that's a continuation of the same thing that, you know, I would have experienced growing up on, on the farm, what, 40 plus years ago now? Well, over 40 years ago, but nearly 50 years ago. You were telling me of a memory of, of your mom bringing you food, lunch to primary school. Can you, can you tell me about that? Yeah, I mean, this is such a strong memory. I, I can remember at lunchtime uh, and we went to the national school in, in Adamstown, you know, really traditional Irish national school. Um, you know, Adamstown is kind of between an Escortian and, and, and Wexford, tiny little village, just a crossroads. But going out and waiting at the schoolyard for my mum to come up because she would make lunch and bring it up to us. She, she was really passionate about making sure we had good and healthy and nutritious food. So she'd make lunch and drive up and I'd wait to see her little Ford Escort. I can still remember the registration. WMI 920 was a little blue Ford Escort. Coming around the corner, getting excited. No, she was bringing food. And one of my favourites, she'd bring a Tupperware filled up with with really buttery gorgeous mashed potatoes with slices of cooked carrot through it and a poached egg on top and it was like the ultimate comfort food like on a cold winter's day or on a wet day having that brought to you to the school gate was such a gift it was such a blessing and going in and sitting in the it was a, as i said a really traditional national school old 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 style national school it's still there i don't know if the cloakrooms are still there but there'd be a big long warm pipe water pipe running underneath the coats in the cloakroom and I'd go in and I'd sit down on that and warm myself on the pipe and eat this food and just like every mouthful was like a hug it was amazing what love it's yeah I'm thinking of the anemic uh sandwiches that my children go to school with now and how amazing it would be for kids to be able to experience something like that now wow that's that's amazing so then yeah, I think I think it was mom who helped me to understand that 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 food like that cooking for somebody was an act of love 
Like it, it is, it goes back to that piece about it being, yes, it's fuel. Yes, it's nourishment, but it's more than just physical nourishment. Like it's almost spiritual and psychic nourishment as well. You're right, you're, you're showing care and concern for another person's well-doing. Like a good plate of food is like a hug. Um, uh, and I, I think I, I got that from her and I believe in that. That's my great joy about putting a plate of food in front of somebody. It's not about somebody saying, oh, you're a great cook or you're this. It's not that. It's not, I'm not looking for the validation of that. The joy for me is seeing somebody get such pleasure from food and, and being able to do that, being able to give that to somebody and have them experience it is just a joy. Do you think that you would have, uh, do you think that you could have and could have gone down a career path in food and enjoyed it? I was, I was meant to actually, I mean, I was, I, when I, when I finished school, I was meant to go off to Carl Brew Street and do a degree in hotel management and food and beverage management. And I ended up working in, in, in the food and beverage industry and catering. I was a restaurant manager in my early twenties in hotels in the UK. Um, and I enjoyed that part of it. It wasn't on the cookery side, which is actually where my passion is. I mean, maybe especially over the last couple of years, people have said to me, would you ever think about, you know, opening a restaurant or a cafe or doing something like that? it's like it's tough yeah i mean it's a tough gig um, I, I almost love it too much to want to do it like that exactly. i think i'm very lucky in that i have the best of both worlds i can share my food i can share recipes in in the column in the examiner online in other spaces i can create these food experiences with people and that's wonderful and um, but i don't have the terrible pressure and stress of trying to run a food business. I had, I had an experience a few years ago when I did MasterChef, where I got to cook in, in commercial kitchens, including doing a, a lunch service in Pied-a-Terre, Michelin star restaurant in Soho in London. And it was fabulous. Like it was a fantastic experience. I loved every minute of it, but I would not want to do it six or seven days a week. Like working 14 hour days in a kitchen it's a bit of a killer. It's tough out. It's tough. Yeah. Out. Also, yeah. I think for me personally, the um, mindset that you have to be in to um, be able to, to work like that is, uh, is beyond a love of food. It's, it's something, something entirely else. And, and I don't think I'd be able for it. So I, I would love it. I think. So tell I me think particularly at that, at that kind of fine dining level, the pressure is intense. Like it's intense. Mm-hmm. So tell me about this first meal that you cooked. Tell me what was behind us, what you cooked. So, so my mom comes back into this again, because despite the fact that we lived on a farm, you know, up until about 1977, she was, she went vegetarian, I think, in the early to mid 1970s. Wow. Um, so, and she was, she, she, yeah, she was, she was quite the visionary. I can remember her saying at the time that she was really concerned about some of the intensive farming methods that were developing, you know, talking about the use of hormones or, or drugs in, in, in animal uh, husbandry, saying these are going to find their way into the, 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 the food chain for humans. And there'll be long-term implications there. And she was worried from a, an animal welfare perspective. I remember her talking about, you know, feeding animal protein to herbivore animals and saying this is going to create problems in the future. So she was, she went, she became vegetarian in, in the, in the, in the 1970s. So we, we ate vegetarian food at least half of the time, much to my dad's horror, um, but he got used to it. So the very first meal I ever cooked, I can remember I was about a 10 or 11 at the time, I think. Um, and we'd moved to Wexford town at this stage and they'd all gone off for a walk in Curraclough on the beach and I stayed at home. So I decided I was going to make dinner for everybody. I was going to make lunch for everybody. 
or dinner as it was then, because we had our dinner in the middle of the day. So um, I took down, uh, it had to be a vegetarian because mom was going to be there. So I got hold of Rose Elliott's Not Just, of All Lent- Not Just a Load of All Lentils, which was one of mom's favourite cookbooks. And it's a fabulous cookbook. I still have it. I have my mother's copy actually here and I love it. And there was a recipe in that for like a, a kind of a vegetable pie. It was effectively a, just a, a layered vegetable dish that used, you know, blanched potatoes, thick slices of potato, uh, big slices of, of white onion, whole slices of white onion, tomatoes and carrots uh, with a cheese sauce and lots of cheddar on top. And then it was just baked in the oven. But like it was the first time I'd ever made a roux or made a, you know, a, 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 a bechamel sauce or anything else like that. And I was... I was thrilled, like I made it while they were away and they came back in starving and they, this was then served up with a big, big salad. And it was the first time I got that kick of seeing them, you know, seeing somebody be really hungry for food that I'd created and seeing them be satisfied by it. And it was a real joy. Like it was, it was lovely. So proud of you. And do, do, do you still remember the feeling of pride of presenting? Oh, wow, I, I can see you in my mind's eye. It was the joy of it. It was like the joy of kind of going, yeah, I, I'm like giving it to them. It was, the, it was the giving of it was the joy. It was like, I made this for you. And I could see that they were delighted because they were hungry. It had been a, you know, a, a long walk on the beach and they'd driven back in again. So it was just this lovely surprise and they were hungry for it. And it was seeing that hunger being satisfied, but also seeing them, enjoy the food so much it was just a yeah it, it it's the thing as i said before it's the thing i love about food i love feeding people love feeding people so now we're going to bangkok with your husband paul yeah and we're eating a thai beef salad yeah on a day today because the sun is shining and you i wish our listeners could see you because the memory of it is making you turn into a human love heart like it's so funny, you know, when we started out this conversation by talking about how food is evocative of so many memories. And just the moment I think about that salad, if I close my eyes, I'm back there again. Like I'm back there in the moment. So Paul and I had met, we met in 1999, in the summer of 1999. And I had never, in, in London, I was living in London at the time. Um, and I'd never really traveled very much because I left home under fairly pressured circumstances in in the early 1980s spent a couple of years in in Dublin and then was in London and my family didn't have a a a history of traveling like of going on overseas holidays or anything we just didn't travel I think I'd only actually gotten a passport for the first time a couple years earlier and I hadn't used it I hadn't been outside of the UK and Ireland at all and when I met Paul he loved to travel um and he said I'm going to take you on holiday and I went, oh, lovely. I thought he meant like he wanted the two of us to go on holiday somewhere. And I had seen this, this um, hotel in Koh Samui in Thailand that was, that was a hotel where lots of the rooms were these boathouses that they'd pulled up into the gardens. And I went, I love the look of that place. And next minute he'd gone and booked a trip for the two of us to, to Thailand. And he was bringing, he actually meant he was bringing me on holiday, which blew me away completely. So off we went, yeah. And on our first night, we had to stay in Bangkok before we we, we travelled down to, to Koh Samui, down to the island. Um, we, the senses. Oh, yeah. Wild. Wild. And we went out and found this market because we're both really adventurous and he's a brilliant, brilliant traveller. 
um, but we're both very adventurous and want to experience places. I mean, for me, there's no point in traveling if you're not going to experience the places that you go to. So we went out and found a, a market locally and ordered this beef salad. And we sat at the table with, you know, bottles of Thai beer and this big plate of beef salad and started to eat it. And it was so hot and so spicy that there were tears streaming down our faces as we ate it. But it was so delicious and so fantastic that we could not stop eating it. It's one of the best things I've ever tasted. I, now, look, probably in large part because how rich the experience was and the fact that I was there with him and we were in the full, full flow of new love and all the rest of it. And it was just the most fantastic experience. But it was also just a fabulous meal. I mean, I love Thai food. I love Asian food generally. You were a big Thai food, fan of the chili. Let's be honest. She loved the yeah. chili. Yeah, love the chili, love gin, ginger. If there was two things I couldn't live without from a food perspective, it would probably be ginger and chili mm. and garlic. I'd have to make it three, ginger, chili and garlic. And I think you can kind of do anything then. You can. I don't think I'm as adventurous as you with the chili. You're, you're, you are, a, you, you, you love the heat. But I, um, I find the chemical reaction in the body with chili unbelievable and gas. It's just the way it makes you feel good it makes you feel happy um now we are going to kenya and you have a special relationship with kenya and can you tell us about this dish and its relationship yeah our, our kids are half kenyan the mum was kenyan she was a, a very very good friend of mine and um uh, that's a, a very long involved story that we won't have time to get into here but we for a brief period of time the kids returned to live with her in Kenya for just a couple of years before she became quite unwell and then the kids came to live with us she sadly died um, not long after that but when we went out to Kenya for the first time to visit them and to, to to try and plan for that and to talk about how we might how we might make that work best for them um yeah I got to experience Kenyan food Swahili food in particular which is just fantastic but there was a particular dish that the kids loved it's called mbazi and it's, uh, it's just a very simple stew, slightly spiced stew made with not much chili at all, actually. It's, it's turmeric and ginger and garlic and a couple of other things. So it's not a, a heat spice, but a spice. Um, and it's, it's, uh, uh, we make it with kidney beans here because they're, they're, they're um, easier to get hold of. But it's made with, with pigeon uh, peas, dried pigeon peas in Kenya and coconut milk. So you just cook it down until you have this gorgeous, unctuous, thick, sweet, savory stew. And then you have it with uh, freshly made chapatis and hot, sweet chai tea. Um, and it's, it's for years now, it's been the, the kids' kind of favorite breakfast. So every now and again, they'll go, will you make them bazi? And now they're, look, they're, they're not kids anymore. They're in their 20s. Um, but yeah, mbazi is a bit of kick. I actually got to do, there's a, a beautiful project attached to the University, University of Limerick called Restart, which, which provides integration supports and integration experiences for people in direct provision, people seeking asylum. And they, they did a, a lovely cookbook recently um, where lots of the recipes were contributed by people who were in, in the international protection system. And they asked me to do a forward version of recipe. And I, I did um, Mbazi for it. I think that's just come out this week, actually. But that's, that's a, a gorgeous, gorgeous, again, an, another lovely, simple, but really comforting. It's, yeah, it's another one of those hook in a bowl, you know. It's perfect. What a beautiful tribute to their mom. What a beautiful way to to continually remind of of culture of their culture through food it's beautiful she was a brilliant cook she was oh. such a good cook 
love the chili she'd make you work love the chili like what what i always remember when we were out there like kukuchoma which is basically just barbecued chicken it's a very simple barbecued chicken but it becomes really special because of the the things you have on the side and there's a salad there that's just the simplest thing really flavorful tomatoes sliced thinly nice big thick juicy tomatoes sliced thinly with lots of really really fiery sliced green chilies on top and lime juice and a little bit of salt and that's it and that with that with like charcoal cooked chicken yeah oh heaven yeah sounds amazing sounds completely amazing okay this brings us nicely to master chef what what brought you there you like you kind of astound me because you're such an impressive human being and and then you got you, you then you, you master chef like i i understand because you love food i understand it it's just really hard to set to to think of uh, all everything that you are such an impressive person what brought you there what what made you decide to put yourself under that kind of pressure i it was really simple. I got asked. <laughs> and I love, I love the, I mean, I love, I've watched the show for years and love it. Uh, one I of the things that I always like to. Which is your favorite MasterChef? Because I am a ride or die MasterChef Australia and I will fight you for it. You see, I haven't watched enough of MasterChef Australia to, to really get into it, but it's interesting how many people, particularly food people say that. So I'm going to watch more of it soon. I have to be honest, in a way, MasterChef kind of broke my love for MasterChef by doing it, even though I think it's a phenomenal concept. Mm-hmm. And what I love about it, it's one of those rare reality TV things that, that by and large, is actually about food. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of, of, of it's going to sound terribly um, pompous. I'm not a massive fan of reality TV. I think no, we're kind of... God, oh, let's not go there. I just worry about, you know, the message. Anyway, whatever. Like, anyway, it's fine, right? I mean, you know, Drag Race is is uh, is is my is my um is my reality TV addiction, and that's as shallow as it gets a lot of the time. So, you know, I'm I'm not one to 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 uh, um um be self righteous about other people's reality if TV. You're gonna do TV. one. MasterChef's a pretty good one to. It's pretty good. Yeah, to hang your but, but also because it was so about food and because when I was approached and asked to do it, um, um, you know, I was con- I was reassured that it was absolutely about food. And then I found out, you know, ultimately they were talking about they hadn't identified who the judges might be yet, but they were saying we want to get some really excellent chefs to be the judges. So I was really captured by the idea of the mentoring that might happen, working with a couple of chefs. And then, I mean, you saw who the who the who the judges were like Robin, Robin Gill and Daniel Clifford. I mean, Daniel, they're both phenomenal. Yeah. Daniel Clifford though, just blows me away. I mean, it, who's, who's going to pass it an opportunity to spend hopefully a little bit of time with a two Michelin star chef with the kind of passion and drive that Daniel has. And the thing that always strikes me about Daniel is his love of food is really, really clear, mm-hmm. but he's passionate interest in helping people to understand food and cookery. Which and to get special. that anything is possible, uh, you know, that they can cook anything that they want to cook was the thing that I love about him most. There's no elitism in, in Daniel. There's no kind of snobbery about it. It's not alchemy. It's not magic. He breaks it down a little bit, you know, and I learned a huge amount from him. That was that my next question. Did, was it like a mini boot camp for you? Did you hone skills that you use every day now? And you're like, oh, that's because I did MasterChef. 
Well, I don't necessarily make that association anymore, but it certainly was, it certainly, yeah, but I think it's true. But I mean, I learned a couple of things. First of all, I, I learned that, that that less is more a lot of the time, like keep things simple. And, you know, in, in ways on the show itself where, where I had a downfall, that was where, where, where I went wrong, where I didn't just really think through what I was doing and, and keep it simple, stay focused on what it was that I was trying to produce and why, and not worry about, about making it too impressive or too complex or too complicated. Um, I mean, for example, the the we one of the one of the dishes that that I, I made on the show that's just a, a, a favorite. I love it. Um, we were given a mystery box, and there was everything in this box from pigeon to you know all kinds of stuff in it. But there was also pears and stem ginger. So I and and hazelnuts, I think. So I decided I would do a really simple. I decided to take a risk, and it was only the second show, second episode that I was in. So I made up a, a really simple pear and stem ginger crumble with a hazelnut crumble on top and then served it with like a caramel custard. And they went nuts for it. Um, it, was a, it was a huge hit and a really, really nice dish. Um, and it, it taught me a lot because the first week that I'd cooked for them, I was making this dish that was an Ottolenghi dish that was, um, it was uh, um, um, like duck with you know pomegranate molasses and pickled walnuts and all kinds of stuff in it like a lovely dish but and I cooked it loads of times but on the show it went horribly wrong because like there was a moment where I slice into my duck and I realized it's not cooked and we're about to serve up and I nearly freak out because the duck breast they had given us hadn't been trimmed they still had some membrane on them and I didn't know that so when I put them on they just went and got really really big but didn't cook so when I cut through them they were raw in the middle I can remember as clearly as day opening this up and seeing this completely raw duck and thinking, oh my God, this is raw and saying it out loud. And next minute, cameramen descended. And I was having this out-of-body experience where I went, oh my God, you're that guy. You're the guy who screwed up completely and now they've come in to observe your appalling shame and trying to remedy it and fix it. And, and I just had, had tried to be too clever. So the next, the next cook was this, this mystery box. You went back to Morgan Bell and that's it, yeah. isn't it? That's yeah. the, because your food does have a common vein and it is comforting and it is loving and it is non-pretentious. Because we've spoken about this before, about our common belief and common mission to make all food accessible, make all, um, make the kitchen a place where you don't feel threatened and make it a place where everyone can go and make a decent dinner for themselves isn't it it's not about 99 ingredients and it's about knowing that there's a carrot in the back garden and that you know confidently three or four ways to cook it yeah absolutely and and if you're gonna if you're gonna write about food if you're going to create recipes and write recipes what's the point in writing a recipe that nobody's ever going to cook are that people are going to feel alienated by rather than excited and interested in. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that into validation and being told that I'm, you know, oh, that's genius, that's clever. Mm -hmm. Actually, the validation or the, not the validation, but the joy that I get is when somebody sends me, you know, a picture of, 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 of their take on, on one of my recipes and they've cooked it and they're really pleased with themselves. Because we have, I mean, one of the things, and MasterChef in part, I think, and shows like it are a little bit responsible for this. They do present cookery as if it's alchemy, as if it's magic. And it, it really isn't. Um, you know, it is about, and that's actually, to be fair, one of the things I adored about Daniel was that he would just say, just understand what you're trying to do. You're applying a technique to a particular ingredient. 
understand what heat does to this ingredient or what cold is to this or what, and then think about whether it's going to work. And if it makes sense to you, try it and develop your understanding of it. But just don't get too caught up in the chemistry of it. You know, it's a bit like, it's a bit like, I know people say that, that, that baking is like chemistry and, you know, it, it's not really, you know, I mean, our, our mums, our parents all, you know, knew how to make a tart without measuring every last ounce out or how to throw together a loaf of bread by eye, you know. Um, yeah. one, of, one of the things I did during lockdown, it, I did it in January, was I avoided the whole sourdough thing. Right, because oh, sourdough for me. Full, did you not go full throttle into sourdough? Oh, I went full throttle into it eventually, right? But I'll explain why. Sourdough to me was a little bit like one of the other things I've gone full throttle into over the last year. Well, not full throttle into, but I've embraced barbecuing. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm probably going to alienate people when I say this, but there's a certain approach to both sourdough and barbecuing that's terribly mansplaining, I think. <laughs> so, like, one of the things I hate is to see barbecuing or our sourdough baking presented as man cookery, right? There's this kind of very kind of gen. Oh, well, now this is proper. This is technical stuff. So I can do this. Don't be asking me now to make a cake or to, you know, you know, cook a dinner for the for for an, an ordinary dinner that people might eat on a Wednesday night. But if it's highly technical and expert, then I'm 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 your man because I'm a man. I'm there to do that. So I always had this kind of aversion to to, and also I just. I just didn't understand why it had to be made so complicated. Mm -hmm. And then my, my sister who lives down in Cove, who's a fabulous cook, um, and one of her friends were getting into sour, sourdough making and I was looking at what they were doing and, and Mary O'Malley, there's a shout out to Mary, um, down in Castle Martyr, shared her sourdough starter approach to me and I liked the look of it. So I played around with that a little bit and it was just really simple. And then similarly, you know, with, so I decided what I would do was I'd, I'd do a daily guide of how to make your own sourdough starter and bake your first loaf of bread and prove to people that it could be really simple. That you could do this by just giving 10 minutes a day to it. That's all it took. And then you can make a loaf of sourdough bread by just chucking everything in a bowl, mixing it, leaving it overnight and then folding it the next day. Sourdough was a no-need bread. I don't know. What I, mean. I, I agree. That's what it, is. it is. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I want to go back to your sourdough though for a second because um your sourdough has quite a few celebrity fans. Twitter is mad for it. Irish Twitter, just your sourdough king and Sarah of the Ashlings, I know, has been feeding her sourdough starter because of you. She was very upset last week because it nearly died, but I think it came back to life. Um, there's a good few big fan. Have you seen Sarah's sourdough? You have, of yeah, course. Yeah, of course I She's have. She's cooking the most technically beautiful sourdough I've ever yeah, seen. Like, it's amazing. so critical of it. I, I mean, yeah. I eat every single loaf of bread that she makes. Yeah. So it's amazing. Yeah. If, if this authoring business goes down the toilet, she definitely has a future in baking, I feel. Mm -hmm. I think so. And the other thing about sourdough is, honestly, you can't kill it. Like, you know, you leave it in the fridge. People contact me occasionally kind of going, oh, I haven't fed it for two weeks. Is that all right? And I went, I left Milo alone for a month. Do you want um, that a, a secret sourdough um, agony ant line where people get into it? <laughs> I get loads of messages from people around. And I love it, right? I love responding to people, whether it's on Instagram, um, which for me is all about food. So my Twitter, obviously, you know, it's, it's a personal Twitter account, but lots of human rights and, and politics and other stuff happens there. But I also share lots of food there. But on Instagram and Facebook, it's all about the food. Like Instagram is only about food with occasional stories of the dogs um, or other little nice moments like that but it's all about food but I love having chats with people about about food there so yeah I get lots of 
yeah, I'm a bit of an agony aunt, agony, agony uncle, whatever you like, about sourdough um, there. But I mean, the big thing is about saying to people, like, about just don't stress about it. Give it a go and see what you think. And if, if your sourdough, if you've left your sourdough starter alone for a month, take it out. There'll likely be a bit of like black water on the top of it, which is just hooch. It's just an alcohol that it produces. Pour that off if you like, or just mix it through. Feed it again. Give it four hours and away you go. Like, you can't kill it, really. <laughs> You'd have to try very hard. I think so. I mean, it is, after all, a bacteria. <laughs> it is. It is. I was explaining that to my children yesterday, actually, yeah. when we were making pizza dough. They were like, whoa, science. So I want to finish um, with, uh, because we've spoken so much about the, the idea of hugging a bowl, I think it would be a nice way to finish with what your ultimate hugging a bowl is. Do you have either um, a secret food love that you want to share with us that you don't really enjoy that you, that you don't really want us to know like do you does Colm O'Gorman secretly sit in a wardrobe eating um onion rings that cost 49 cent from Tesco or is it always the good and true I know I mean I love a, I love a, a, a bit of a an indulgence now and again sometimes those indulgences can be luxurious and sometimes they can be very much everyday I mean who doesn't like a monster munch now and again I mean come on like monster munch and a diet and a, and a, and a can of diet coke and I'm away in a hack every now and again and though not a bottle don't don't oh it has to be a can has to. why would you want yeah absolutely and it has to be out of the fridge yeah or yeah. or some or some or some um, fruit and nut chocolate and a glass of cold milk that's the other thing for me which I quite like right but but in terms of comfort food, to be honest with you, any the food I love to eat, I'm a much bigger fan of savory food than sweet, even though I do love making desserts and I love sweet food. I love a good brunch. Like I love making brunch is one of my favorite meals to make for people. Cooking up a massive big brunch and bringing lots of friends around when we were able to do that. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I'm really looking forward to, you know, when we move beyond, you know, all of the restrictions, hopefully at some point. So like, you know, making big piles stacks of fluffy buttermilk pancakes i did some um, at the weekend for for family and one friend who's in our bubble and they were they were like ricotta pancakes with rhubarb that was roasted the root the same rhubarb that i did for the pavlova oh, that i did with or- oh my god with orange and honey yeah so good. and then so ricotta pancakes with that and some greek yogurt and flaked almonds and just some crispy streaky bacon on the side like that kind of plate of food is just a joy uh, of a weekend that kind of stuff I love but I love like a shakshuka for brunch or big bowls of ramen or or I've gotten massively into Korean flavors over the last year Korean food Korean cuisine is just a joy it's delicious and it's just phenomenal it's a beautiful beautiful uh, cuisine um, so I've gotten big into that recently. I have to avoid cooking too much Korean fried chicken or I'll be the size of a truck. <laughs> there isn't enough running to work all of that off. But yeah, that, that's the kind of food that I love. But I mean, you know, the, the thing for me about comfort food is the best comfort food is something that you can, you can go from opening up the fridge to putting in a bowl in 15 or 20 minutes. You know, I just, for me, that's the, that's the thing about cookery. Fast food, the fastest food you can make is the food you can prepare at home if you, if you, if you have the right ingredients to hand and if you have the confidence to go about it, you'll make a better, tastier dish in 15 or 20 minutes at home than anything that you'll order from a takeaway that afterwards you'll often feel a bit, ugh, I feel a bit stodgy after that, right? So my comfort, my favorite comfort food is, is, is a, big bo- a big bowl of, you know, Korean 
chili beef or something or you know that that kind of stuff and we can find that recipe for Korean chili beef on irishexaminer.com because you did it for your column a couple of months back yeah I did indeed we're all there thank you so much for speaking to us today I really really appreciate it and I'd love speaking to you thanks Kira. it was a it was a joy really enjoyed it and loving working with you all loving it Thank you for listening to the Great Irish Summer Podcast Series with me, Kira MacDonald. This is a three-part series. You can find more on irishexaminer.com. Thanks to Steve Neville on sound and to Colm O'Gorman for being such a wonderful guest. Have a great summer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.